Our next panel will be on the topic of soft power. It will be chaired by Professor Ma Yueren, Emeritus Professor at Stockholm University. Professor Cao Yunhua and Professor Luo Lisheng will also be speaking on this panel. Let's welcome Professor Ma Yueren to open the panel discussion. Well, I welcome you all to this panel discussion on soft power. Allow me first to introduce to you the, my two colleagues, speakers at the panel. Uh, Professor Cao Yunhua, to my left, is Dean of the School of International Studies, Executive Dean of the Academy of Overseas Chinese at Jinan University. He is Deputy Director of Chinese Society of Asia-Pacific Studies and Deputy Director of Chinese Society of Southeast Asia Studies and Executive Member of Chinese University Society of International Politics. Uh, Professor Zhao has worked as a visiting fellow in various institutions in the region, including the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies, Singapore, 1994, the Development Center for Philippine-China Resources, uh, 1996, the Institute of Asian Studies at Chulalongkorn University, Thailand, in the year 2000, National Taiwan Normal University Graduate Institute of Political Science, Taiwan, 2010, and Nanyang Technological University School of Humanities and Social Sciences, Singapore. Professor. Cao leads as an active voice on issues related to China's foreign policy and security cooperation in Southeast Asia. His new research interests on association of Southeast Asian nations provides incisive insights into the complex and diverse nature of Southeast Asia as a political, economic, and cultural entity. As seen in the recent book he co-authored, Asian Structure, Motion, and Diplomacy, 2010. Uh, Professor Zhao was also the editor-in-chief of China's report on South China Sea status, Kuo, Nang Hai Di Chu Xing Shi Bao Gao, 2012, 2012. Report on Overseas Chinese, Shi Zhi Chao Qing Bao Gao. Uh, from 2011-2012, and observation on overseas Chinese Haiwai Chaoqing Guancha from last, last year. Professor uh, Luo Lisheng is China Director at the Confucius Institute for Business in London. He served formerly as Vice Dean of School of Humanities and Social Sciences as well as the Dean of Foreign Languages Department at Tsinghua University for 10 years. In uh, 2008, he was appointed as Director of the International Office at Tsinghua University. Professor Luo graduated from Tsinghua University in 1977 and studied in Victoria University in New Zealand from 1980 to 1982. His main research interest includes applied linguistics and language education. 
Uh, Professor Law published widely in journals such as Foreign Languages and Teaching and Foreign Language Education. He has received multiple awards at both the municipal and the national uh, level. And now a few words about myself. Uh, let me state at the very outset that my field of research interests are Chinese linguistics and literature, ancient, modern, and contemporary. I have spent very little time indeed, very little time and energy on the study of Chinese economics and other socio-political aspects of the Chinese society. But I do belong to the rapidly diminishing tribe of sinologists who have experienced China from before 1949. I spent two years in China from 1948 to 50 investigating dialects in the province of uh, Sichuan. In the years 1956 to 58, I served as cultural secretary at the Swedish embassy in Peking. And in those years, I had to follow the socio-political development very closely. The topic of this panel is the fairly recently developed concept of soft power, described as the ability to attract and co-opt rather than coerce, use force, or give money as a means of persuasion. One of the aims of soft power is to facilitate and pave the way for the globalization of the power-wielding country. Globalization is looked upon as a goal, not only for China's economy, but also for its culture. I'm fully convinced that the economic assets of China may be defined in clear and understandable terms. But what about China's enormous cultural assets? Who will be responsible for defining and evaluating them? It appears that the Confucian Institutes are meant to play important roles when it comes to introducing Chinese culture to the rest of the world. I have some negative views on, on, on this, and I will go on to, to explain why. Uh, some years ago, the Hanban headquarters of the Confucius Institutes initiated a scheme involving a retranslation into English of the Confucian Five classics to serve as handbooks in Chinese culture and civilization for Western <coughs> readers. 
Now the problem is, the very great problem is, that three of these works, while traditionally associated with Confucius, totally lack literary quality. And that a translation of the remaining two works would require lengthy commentaries in order to be understood. So to me, it is quite clear that the Hanban cannot be regarded as a reliable guide to the essentials of Chinese culture. These are hard words, but I will go on to, to prove what I'm saying. Now, the five Confucian classics are the, the Yi, the Shu, the Yi Jing, the Shu Jing, the Shi Jing, the Li, and the Chun Zhou. Now, Yi, Yi Jing, is an ancient handbook of divination written in an utterly obscure language lacking literary quality and exceedingly hard to understand even for scholars who have made a special study of the text. Very poor translations of the text have served since the 1950s as a New Age Bible for a generation of hippies. The shooting is a collection of archaic documents, uh, mostly fictitious speeches by prominent members of the archaic society of China, which very few Chinese can read with full understanding. Li, Li Jing, is a collection of dry-as-dust notes on rites and rituals of feudal China, uh, mostly of very little or no literary value whatsoever. <coughs> and the Chunchou is an analytic chronicle of one of the feudal states, the state of Lu, present-day Shantung, in the period 722 to 481 before our era. And that work utterly, is utterly void of literary qualities. The one work in the, in the Wu Jing, in the five classics, that really has literary quality is the Shi Jing, which is a compilation of 305 poems, uh, traditionally attributed to, to, uh, to uh, uh, Confucius, but that, that has been proved uh, mistaken. Uh, it contains, among other things, it contains folk songs uh, gathered from all over uh, the China of that, of that time. Um, wonderful short uh, lyrics. Uh, apart from the folk songs, there is a, a great many a court, a lot of, of court poetry, which would require a, a great deal of, uh, of uh, commentary in order to be understood. So that is really, among the five classics, uh, the sitting uh, is the one that has, contains some literary uh, quality. Studies of, of literature, the arts, 
and other humanities have a very long and glorious tradition in China. It would indeed be easy to find members for a panel that could draw up the guidelines for the compilation of a corpus comprising the most outstanding representations of Chinese culture. As far as literature is concerned, a fair amount of work has been done in the West, and all major genre in China's 3,000 years of literary history are represented by excellent translations into Western languages. Uh, I, I will attempt to, to give you my own view on, on what a handbook of, of Chinese literature aiming at instructing foreign readers would be like. It should contain a selection from the Gofeng section of the Shi Jing, the folk poetry that I spoke to a moment ago. There should be extensive selections of the major thinkers of the Chunzhou period, like the Confucian scholars Mengzi and Xunzi. And one of the four books should be presented in its entirety, entirety Lunyi, the Analects. There should be large selections from a Taoist philosopher called Zhuangzi, who has written one of the greatest works in, in early Chinese history. There should be long excerpts from an historical work called the Zhou Zhuan. It's a commentary to the Chunchu text. It's a long, it, it, was, it has been long been thought to be a commentary to the Chunchu text. It may not be. But um, that is one of the, of the greatest works in early Chinese literature and ought to be presented to, to the Western public. During the Han period, 200 before until 200 after, after Christ, uh, a great deal of poetry was, was written. Uh, a major historical work by Sima Chen called Shi Ji, the historian's uh, notes, contains a letter written by Sima Chen called Letter to, to a, uh, Ranan, a friend of his, who had written to ask, ask his, uh, his help. And that is one of the most moving pieces of literature from, from the Han period. That ought to be presented. During the Nanpei Tao period, from 420 to 581, a great deal of poetry was written, and there should also be large selections of poetry from the Tang and the Song period. <coughs> a handbook should also include, to my mind, selections of Buddhist texts, Buddhist sermons from the Tang and the Song period. Uh, one such is called the Liu Zhu Tan Jing, the, the Platform Sutra by the Sixth Zen Patriarch, which is a remarkable work written in the 8th century, but written in a language that 
have very great affinities with modern spoken uh, Chinese. At least one drama from the Yuan period should be included, and then finally selections from Ming, from uh, the famous uh, novels of the Ming and the Qing periods, such as the Xiao uh, Ji, uh, the uh, journey to the West, uh, dealing with a, uh, a pilgrimage from in the early time period, in the early 7th century, to India to fetch the uh, holy uh, sutras. And the other, the uh, Qing novel, Hung uh, Lo Meng, uh, uh, Dreams in Red Pavilions, which is one of the real uh, masterpieces of world literature. You see, it, it's so strange. I very often are asked by, by Chinese students who said, when will Chinese literature catch up with the West? When will Chinese literature be, be acknowledged as part of world literature? Now, this, this to me, it makes me very sad to hear these questions because I mean, China only 2,000 two years ago, China had a rich, a rich uh, uh, literature. And, and at the time when the Western world couldn't spell the world literature, China produced great theses on the, on the, on, on, on the uh, in literary theory. So it is not a question of China catching up. China, a long time ago, caught up with world literature. The problem is that the rest of the world isn't aware of that fact. And why? Because so very, very little has been translated in, well into Western languages. A former secretary, permanent secretary to the um, uh, Swedish uh, Academy once said, world literature is translation. Without translation, there can be no world literature. And that is my, my hope is that in the future we will see we will see a great many translations of excellent masterpieces, not only of modern, uh, modern and contemporary Chinese literature, but also of the forgotten masterpieces of the past. I think I will stop there and um, leave it to, to Professor Tao to, to, to give his thought. <咳>我们下午我们又第二次见面了啊那么今天下午我要谈的主题是叫中美日印在东南亚的软实力比较和它的启示也是跟东南亚有关的那么我为什么选择谈这个问题呢因为最近我们刚刚我带领一个课题组
这是对这四个大国在东南亚的软实力做个比较研究。那么谈这个四个问题，第一呢是首先对中美日印在东南亚的综合的软实力做个评估啊，做个评估。那么东南亚国家呢，有现在我们说的比较多是十个国家，其实应该准确一点说，应该是十一个国家，因为现在。东帝汶是已经独立了，那应该是是一个国家，但是现在加入东盟的东盟的成员国是十个国家，啊，那么这个中美日印在东南亚的软实力呢，应该说他们的情况差别很大，啊，发挥作用的形式也不同，啊，很难对这四个国家在东南亚的软实力做一个简单的比较，然后得出结论说哪个国家强。哪个国家弱，是吧？那么，由于这个历史、宗教、文化传统、现实的政治经济因素等的影响，啊，或者叫综合作用吧，中美日印在东南亚各个国家的软实力是，在各个国家是有相对的优势的，啊。那我就综合软实力而言，美国在菲律宾应该是强于其他三个国家。而在泰国和新加坡，中国的优势表现得比较明显。那么总体而论呢，根据我们的研究呢，应该说是这个美国是老大，第一啊，在软实力方面，综合软实力啊。然后呢，这个日本第二啊，中国第三啊，这个印度是排在第四。那么我想这个。四个大国在东南亚的软实力排名，跟这个在全球的排名应该差不多的啊名次啊。但是这里要补充说明一点，就是说这个排名应该是相对的啊。而且我们的一些研究的数据呢是前几年的啊，二零一零年到一二年的数据。那现在这个这个情况在不断的变化。我想这个软实力的情况呢，也是不断的变化的，这是一个相对而言的情况。那么我们的克里族研究发现，啊，尽管中国啊在东南亚这个软实力资源方面有较大的投入，其实在世界各个地方都是这样啊，包括在非洲，这个中国的软实力资源投入很大，包括这个呃。发展援助啊，等等，是吧？但是呢，由于参与主体的太过单一，那么基本上是中国政府啊出面啊单打一啊，所以这个在软实力资源的使用呢也有不当啊等等情况，导致呢这个中国的软实力的增长是跟这个硬实力的增长应该是不匹配的啊，不匹配的啊，应该说目前在。这方面是落后于这个美国和日本的，啊。那么经济软实力呢？这个角度来看啊，我们把这个软实力分成很多：经济软软实力、政治软、政治与外交软实力，还有文化软实力等等。那么经济软实力而言呢，呃，日本在东南亚的经营的时间比我们中国长多了，是吧？日本这个从第二次世界大战结束以后，他就重新回到。东南亚地区，啊，这个精耕可以说是精耕细作，啊，半个多世纪，所以应该说，日本在东南亚的这个软实力、经济方面的软实力
应该是站在第一位的啊，甚至超过美国啊。所以这个像你不用看其他啊，你就看一个这个到东南亚去访问，你看看这个日本的汽车你就知道。大减小像基本上都是日本汽车，啊，日本的各大品牌的汽车，啊，基本上在东南亚冲刺市场，啊，从这一点你就可以发现，日本的经济软实力在东南亚的影响是何等之大，啊，那我们中国的这个这几年，在东南亚的经济存在，在迅速增长，是吧？这个现在中国是，呃，东盟的第一大贸易伙伴。东盟是中国的第四大贸易伙伴，那中国的投资在东南亚地区也不断增加，啊，那么这个经济软经济实力，它是在一定一定程度上它可可以转化为这个软实力的，但是这个转化的过程是一个比较复杂的过程，啊，比如说这个产品，这个产品要它不能是硬实力是吧？但是如果要转化为软实力的话，比如说产品在。外国的这个消费者心目中的形象如何？这个有时候可以代表一个国家。像这个日本的品牌和中国的品牌现在是没法比，那中国的品牌可能往往是比较差的。那现在东南亚人的心目中的印象，中国产品就是一点说的不好听，就是什么假冒伪劣商品比较多一点。这个就大大的损害了我们中国的软实力，是吧？是这样一种情况。那个四个国家呢？英国说，这个在东南亚存在很大的差异啊，在各个国家存在情况是不同的。美国在印尼、菲律宾的软实力应该居于领先地位，那么日本在越南、马来西亚、缅甸的软实力具备优势，而中国我前面讲了，在泰国、在新加坡，应该说有较好的表现。第二个问题。啊，中美日印软实力的国别比较，啊，那首先来看看中美日印在印尼的软实力的比较，啊，那么在印尼、印度尼西亚呢，这个美国得分是最高的，啊，接着是日本，啊，第三是中国，第四是印度，啊，那么美国在人类资本和政治方面得分最高，呃，经济影响吸引力方面少胜于日本。文化和外交软实力方面得分第一，日本和中国，排在美国之后的是日本，它的每个指标的排名都居第一或者是第二，经济、文化、外交得分居第一，而人力资本指标的得分这与美国差距较大，中国的软实力得分在印度尼西亚应该是居第三位的，啊，那么中国在文化外交表现比较好，啊，两项的得分应该是居在第二位。这个是呃一些基本的数字啊。那么中美日印在菲律宾的软实力比较呢，那肯定美国是第一的啊，美国第一，日本第二啊，这个然后是中国和印度啊。那么菲律宾虽然也很多华侨华人啊，华侨华人，这个等后面我还会讲，但是这个华侨华人在转化为软实力这方面呢，这个菲律宾比英比泰国要差。为什么？这个后面我来回答这个问题。泰国，啊，那么中美日印在泰国的软实力比较，应该说中国是得分最最高的，啊，得分最高的，啊
，在经济软实力、文化软实力、外交软实力和政治软实力方面，四个方面都排在第一，而日本排在第二，美国在第三，啊，最后是印度。那么泰国的调研数据的反馈呢，呃，也出乎我们的意料，我们当时也没想到中国会能排第一啊，那可能这个。呃，因为我们的我们的这个问卷调查，可能呃有有些不是很，就是说不是很这个准确，可能有关系。因为现在我们我们这次在东南亚做了很多调查呢，可能比较偏重于这个华华人啊，问卷很多收回来的华人的数据比较多一点。那么泰国是这样子。那么中中美在新加坡的软实力比较，这个因为新加坡呢是比较特殊，所以我们就没把啊日本和印度放在里面，主要是比较这个中国和美国。那我们发现呢，呃，新加坡是一个很特殊的国家，对吧？这个呃，中国的文化在新加坡影响应该是比较深远的，所以我们发现呢，这个在很多得分方面呢，中国的得分要高于美国啊，高于美国，但是这个。这个数据的这个出来以后，我们也发现有点，呃，可能会跟现实有点偏差，因为新加坡人总的来说，最近我刚刚从这个，呃，去年六七八三个月刚刚从新加坡做访问学者做三个月回来，啊，我发现新加坡人对中国的评价啊，这个很多呃，应该是呃，跟原来我们的调查可能有点差距。那么越南啊，越南的情况呢比较复杂，啊，所以我们的调查结果是，这个现在呢这个，呃，中国为什么在越南部分得得分最高，啊，那么实际上我们调查结果发现呢是日本是排排名是最前面的，啊，美国虽然跟越南曾经打过一仗，啊。但是越南人好像对美国并不反感，啊，这个反而对中国比较反感，啊，这个造成这种原因可能是多方面的，啊，这个其实现在中越的经济关系是非常紧密的，啊，这个现在中国应该是越南的最大的出口贸易、出口市场，啊，两个国家的经济联系非常密切，而且我们这个。中国也在历史上要曾经对越南提供过很多很多援助，啊，包括越南独立的两场战争都是我们帮他打赢的，是吧？五十年代五十年代的这个抗法抵抗法国啊，其实独立那一场著名的奠边府战役，基本上是我们中国的将军们帮他们打的，是吧？那一场战争啊，让越南取得了摆脱了法国的殖民统治。统治取得独立，那么第二场战争是抗美援越，啊，在座的很多同学可能你们自己不清楚，但是你们的父辈是很清楚的，啊，抗美援越，那中国是做了大量的牺牲的，但是这两场战争打下来，我发现我们在调研调查的过程中发现，越南人对我们的评价并不高，啊，并不高，这个这里是很值得我们反思的，是吧？因为中越关系也比较特殊，啊，比较特殊
那么在缅甸，我们只对中国和印度做了比较，啊，这个在缅甸呢，应该说，目前中国的得分是比较高的，啊，高于印度，啊，但是今后就很难说了，啊，今后就很难说，因为这个我我前面也讲了，这个是个动态的一个过程，啊，会变化的，啊，这个在前面的十几年，啊，这个印度跟，呃、这个缅甸跟中国的关系。应该是很很密切的，啊，但是后来，特别是最近两三年，这个西方结束了对缅甸的制裁以后，啊，那现在缅甸也是奉行全方位的外交，啊，那今后我想这个是一个呃一个变化的过程中的，啊，这个目前是中国排在第一，啊，那后面呢，我想会出现有很多的变数。谈第三个大问题，中国应该如何提升自己的软实力？啊，就是我们通过从这个东南亚的一些比较，我们得出的一些啊一些结论。啊，我想首先是我们要强调的是，中美两个国家提出软实力的背景是不同的，啊，不同的。啊、这个美国提出软实力的背景，我想是跟他的这个硬实力、硬实力的这个相对下降。有关系的，所以约瑟夫奈提出这个软实力的理论是说，美国在硬实力相对下降的情况下，如何维护美国在世界上的领导地位，那么必须通加强软实力。所以他提出美国的软实力是在世界第一的，通过软实力来辅辅助支撑这个硬实力，那美国仍然可以当 number one。是吧？世界第一，他才提出这个软实力的，呃，背景是这样一个情况。那我们中国人提出软实力背景是不同的，是吧？我们不是要争夺世界霸权，哎，我们碰到的是个什么问题呢？中国是在和平发展、在成长为世界大国的过程中，我们发现我们周边的国家，我们的这个所处的世界好像不理解我们，啊，不理解我们，处处受到误解，受到不信任。甚至把我们中国的理解成是暴发户，对不对？那是我们想改变这种形象，让世界正确的认识中国。所以，我想这个完全跟美国的软实力提出的背景是不同的。我们希望我们的外部世界能够正确的认识和理解中国，呈现一个正面的形象给全世界。那么第二个问题，谈谈中国软实资软实力资源的培育。就平心而论，我们中国现在的这个软实力的资源是很丰富的，是吧？很丰富的，包括在东南亚、在非洲、在世界其他地区，我们都有很丰富的软实力资源。但是，这个资源要转化为现实的软实力，是有个过程的，那就看你怎么转化了，是吧？包括现在，呃，我们在海外有这么多华侨华人，包括现在我们海外建立了很多很多孔子学院，啊，像这些，它是还只是软实力的资源，如何变成这个现实的软实力？那我觉得，这个过程是一个长期的，而且很多艰苦的工作要做，对吧？而且很多呢，我觉得是要靠自身的修炼的，啊，所以我觉得。
，我们我们周四的这个做一个研究报告得出的结论就是说，我们在提升在海外提升软实力的，更多要工作要做的还是国内，把国内的事情办好，是吧？让国内的人民感到安全，感到自己对前途有信心，这可能是提升软实力的根本，是吧？你的老百姓都没有安全感，一吃东西要吃进口的，啊。那那是不行，对吧？那怎么谈得到在海外提升软实力？那么第二点呢是，这个培育这个软实力的，就是说我们弘扬中华文化啊，既要保持传统，也要不断创新啊，不断创新。现在我们一谈中华文化，就是那传统的一些东西啊，京剧是吧？呃，这个这个武术，还有这个中餐馆。但是我们要创新啊，我们中华文化现在缺乏创新能力，缺乏创新能力，是吧？我们多拿点能够给美国的好莱坞大片、日本的动漫，给他们一样的东西出来，让全世界人民欣赏，这个才是很重要的东西。国际当然也很重要，是吧？那么怎么转化？啊，首先我觉得。我们的渠道要多元化，啊，要改变单一的这个由政府来主导这个局面，啊，每一个民间团体、每一个企业，在海外的企业，每一个人，我想都应该发挥作用，而不是单单纯由政府来做事这个事是吧？还有对外传播过程中要改变完美的固有思维，我想在很多场合，哪怕你把你自己的这个。比较黑暗的一面，或者你的伤疤，拿出来给别人看看，这个我觉得也无妨，对吧？你不要老是给人家看好的、高大的形象，跟跟人家看那个伤害北京啊，那那个都是高楼大厦，是吧？要跟人家看看中国的农村怎么发展呢？绵阳地区怎么发展呢？我觉得这个也很重要，啊，外国人更多的想看真实的。那我就最后谈一谈这个华侨华人的问题。所以说，很多人会问：华侨华人，我们在海外有这么多华侨华人，他们在提升中国的软实力方面能扮演一个什么角色，起什么作用啊？那我想要谈这个问题的话，首先几个概念要搞清楚：一个是华侨，华侨是是吧？是拿中国护照长期在海外居住的那一部分，我们叫华侨啊。这个华人呢，是指已经拿了外国护照的当地国家的公民，成为外国的公民的。还有一个概念叫华裔、华族，啊，应该跟华人差不多的概念，就是指拿了中国、拿了外国护照的，成为当地国家公民的那部分人，啊，那我们的留学生呢？呃，留学生应该我们一般叫做海外中国公民，因为你们还是在海外留学的，但是你们是华侨华人的潜在的这个队伍后备军，是吧？也许你们留学完了就留在这里了，就成为这边的。这个英国公民了，那你们我们就把它叫做华裔。那我想呢，这个华侨华人在一定的程度下，他是可以转化为软实力。那是以泰国为例，泰国为什么我们中国在东南亚地区，泰国的软实力第排名第一的？那为什么在泰国可以，其他地方不行呢？因为其他地方也很多华侨华人啊，是吧？整个东南亚地区有，应该说有四千万左右的华侨。因为现在我们的海外华侨华人现在
，是说六千万，六千万的全世界啊，那么百分之七十在东南亚地区，那大概起码有四千万，啊，四千万呢，那泰国的情况为什么能够花家花人能够起到那么重要的作用呢？我觉得是有这么几个条件的，啊，第一，泰国的华侨华人已经跟当地民族完全融合在一起了，啊，完全融合在一起。这个在东南亚其他国家还还没有完全做到，所以在泰国的人口统计中，他已经没有华族这个人口统计的，没有的啊，他就是就是把他当作是泰国人啊，泰国人，所以你要分在泰国你要分清楚华人、泰人，你基本上很难分清楚啊。这个我问过一个当地的一个华华人，有一次在。我在朱拉隆功大学做访问学者，在大学校园里面散步。我问，呃，怎么分、怎么辨别这里面这些学生是华人还有泰人？我那个朋友小男孩说，那个皮肤白一点的可能是泰，可能是华人血统的人，啊，皮肤白一点的。除了这个以外，没有其他任何特征的，啊，所以我想这是一个衔接条件，啊，是完全融合在一起。还有泰国华人残证。啊，他没有任何障碍，啊，所以你看现在最近的几任总理都是华人，是吧？华裔啊，华裔、啊。另外呢，泰国华人为中泰关系的发展做出了重重要的贡献。这中泰关系现在双在中中国跟东南亚所有国家的双边关系中，中泰关系是最好的，没有任何障碍，啊，是这样子情况。最后，我想做个结论啊，那么中国在海外提升软实力是一个。长期的过程也是一个系统工程，啊，系统工程。那么，我想在我们国家的对外战略中，应该有个很重要的位置。那现在呢，中国正在走向世界大国，啊，它需要有一个完整的，啊，具有前瞻性的对外战略。那我想，只要假以时日，啊，通过我们这个国家上下啊，政府和人民的共同努力，我们中国在。国际上的形象一定能够得到提升，一定能够得到跟他的这个世界大国地位相适应的软实力。我的发言完了，谢谢大家。Uh, thank you so much, Professor Zhao, for this interesting uh, uh, talk. Now the、uh, it's up to the audience to. Ask questions or give comment? Yes. Could you speak up, please? They didn't know you. No, no, no. No. <laughs> um, well, uh, I think uh, to propaganda soft power is also our um, students' duties. So, what can our university students do to propagandize this soft power? Could you repeat the question, please? Um. Yes. Uh, I mean, um, because it's everyone's duty to. Uh, to make our soft power, a soft power to to be known around the world. So, uh, 
what actions can our students do to achieve our purpose?就是你的問題是怎麼樣提升中國的軟實力我們這位同學我覺得提一個問題很好這個外國人一面鏡子他们觉得他们西方国家很多人一看到中国这些东西就有一种警觉性没有用到任何的推广方式却被全世界知道所以有时候我觉得会不会我们特意的想让某些文化被全世界知道却没有达到我们想要的预期结果谢谢谢谢非常多谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢谢
from this institute also, they have uh, probably they can provide the right information uh, much correct than that I'm going to provide you about uh, the soft power and also the Confucius Institute. And why I said that when we mention Confucius Institute, and it is rather sensitive to us, because these days there are some good stories and bad stories about Confucius Institute. And therefore, I'd like to take this opportunity to speak for the Confucius Institute for Business London so that you will get a clear picture about this institute. And I do hope that you will get a better understanding of the Confucius Institute for the Business London. And actually, I'd like to share with you my understanding and my personal opinions about the soft power that China hopes to develop. And uh, <coughs> uh, these are the questions. Uh, these are the questions uh, first came to my mind when I was asked to give this short presentation. I really want to find answers, clear answers to these questions. What does soft power mean for the Chinese? What is the definition of soft power from the Chinese perspective? I think we should get a clear, uh, clear definition from the Chinese side. And this is the first question. Uh, what is the purpose for China to build up soft power? Why? Uh, what kind of soft power does China hope to develop? There are different kinds of soft powers, as Professor Cao mentioned. And for this very short topic, I'll focus mainly on the cultural soft power. This is the phrase many Chinese scholars like to use. And another question is, what are the roles of Confucius Institute in regards to the soft power? What we are doing here? And in what sense are the roles regarded as part of Chinese soft power? With these questions, I did some study, and I went through several articles written by American scholars and Chinese scholars as well. Uh, soft power is the concept developed by Professor Joseph Y of Harvard University. He used this phrase to describe ability to attract and co-opt rather than to use force or give money as a means of persuasion. In his book, Soft Power, The Means to Success in World Politics, he continued to explain it is a loose term whereby a country improves its reputation and ability to persuade others by its actions and the principles rather than its overt and covered threats to bully others. Confucius Institute never done anything up like that. We never. And we dare not. 
My understanding is, it is a very positive definition of soft power, Professor Nye gave us here. Now, what is the Chinese definition? The definition by given by the Chinese scholars, based on his concept, some Chinese scholars explained this word in the, our own way. These uh, scholars, such as Professor Xue Lan from Tsinghua University, Professor Yu Xiantian from Shanghai, they described Chinese soft power in this way. They made the following points. The first point is that the China is a big developing country, and its rich cultural and long history should be known to the world. The second point, for China, soft power should refer mainly, I'd like to draw your attention to, mainly to cultural exchange, nothing else, cultural exchange to promote mutual understanding. I totally agree with this scholar's statement, and it can be regarded as the Chinese version or Chinese definition of soft power. Certainly there might be different explanations. These scholars continue to stress that for China, it should have nothing to do with the cultural interference. No cultural interference, no cultural invasion, not at all. They explained another way by saying that some conflicts or troubles in the world today are caused by misunderstandings. If different nations had understood each other better, these conflicts or troubles may not have happened. Therefore, it is useful for different countries to understand each other through cultural exchange. That's something rather important that these Chinese, uh, Chinese scholars believe because it shows the purpose. The purpose, my understanding is that there will be no trouble, there will be no conflicts, it will be a peaceful world. China really needs a peaceful and harmonious world to develop its economy and to realize China dream. What is the China dream? My understanding is that the country is prosperous. The Chinese people live a better life. We have no worry about the clothes. We have no worry about the food. This is Chinese dream. We have no, nothing to do with cultural interference to other cultures. No, we have never thought about that. So this can be regarded as the purpose of Chinese soft culture. These Chinese scholars also, I'd like to mention another thing, also quoted the results of 2013 Morocco soft power survey to show that there is still room for China to develop its soft power. According to this survey, 
the top ten countries are the top ten countries are in terms of soft power Germany, the UK, France, Canada, and Italy. The something very interesting. The survey said the the UK ranked number two. Just because of its successful London Olympic Games in 2012, and、uh, what is China's position? It's 22nd in the survey. So these days, many Chinese people are talking. Chinese scholars are talking about cultural soft power. The cultural soft power includes includes literature, the fine arts, education. And so on. So the scholars think that the Chinese Chinese so, so,、uh, culture of the power still has room to be enhanced. The example I like to give you is that almost every educated person in China knows these people: Ernest Hemingway. Every educated person in China almost know these people. The Ernest Hemingway, Mark Twain, Shakespeare, George Bernard Shaw, one of the founders of Elsie, and so on. But not many people in the West know the Chinese novel *The Three Kingdoms*. They have not many people have idea about Confucius. Actually, the Confucius has many useful thoughts. He once said, "The." How happy we are when our friends come from afar. It is a very simple sentence, but it was said three thousand years ago. The meaning behind this sentence is: the Chinese nation should be friendly, should be prosperous. And so this indicates that Chinese cultural soft power still has a long way to go. Five minutes. Okay. Their su suggestion is, oh, sorry, and also for this reason, for this purpose, as I said, the purpose for China to enhance its soft power in the world is to let more people to understand China, to understand its、uh, Chinese culture and its people, and uh, so uh, uh, to avoid. The conflicts and the troubles in a peaceful environment, China can concentrate on its economic development to make people's lives better than before. This is our purpose. So I do agree with this purpose. The of the brand of soft power China hopes to develop, and、uh, therefore. It is rather useful to enhance the soft culture of the power in the world. As the Confucius Institute provides the teaching the cultural programs, in this sense, they should be regarded as vehicles for China's soft cultural soft power, only for this purpose. I'm from the Confucius Institute. Now let's look at the two roles of Confucius Institute, and that is is what exactly we are doing here. The first role is to offer 
high-quality Mandarin teaching programs. The second one to provide a platform for cultural exchange. And let's look at the CBO, the Confucius Institute for Business Lender. Our Confucius Institute is London Shangwu Kongzixue. You are welcome to our Confucius Institute. It's a very nice place, <laughs> <laughs> and we have uh, many very nice uh, uh, events. Very useful for the mutual understanding and the cultural exchange. And let's look at how the Sibyl plays these two roles very quickly in two minutes. Before that, I have a few more words to say about Sibyl. We have a short form for our institute. Sibyl, very nice short form. Sibyl, easy to remember. <laughs> so I give you the whole picture. The Sibyl is held. In cooperation between LC and the Tsinghua University, Tsinghua is one of the top universities in China. Just like LC, it has a high academic reputation, both in China and in the world. And in addition, Sibyl has five very strong sponsor companies. They are BP, HSBC, Standard Chartered. Swire Group and uh, Deloitte. One of the keynote speakers, uh, John Hughes, this morning he gave a speech. He is uh, from BP. He is also a member of、uh, advisory council of Sibo. And、uh, we received uh, frequent and uh, su firm support from this institute, two institutions and companies over the past eight years.、Uh, these are the. What we are doing here, since the time is running out,、uh, the Mandarin teaching programs, six in categories. They are very nice programs, mainly for the company people and uh, uh, CEO. I give you one example. One C, one is uh, uh, Stephen Lord Stephen Green. He was a former minister of a state of trade and investment. 英国外贸投资大臣，在我们 Cibo learning Chinese. We are very proud of that. Thank you, thank you. What are what we are doing? We are teaching here. This is the translation of contents from one of our textbooks. We tell our students how to open a bank account in Chinese. We tell our students how to take a business trip, making advert,、uh, advert, uh, uh, advertising, marketing, and so on. All the things contents are related to the business because this is a business、uh, Confucius Institute. And、uh, the second row is as a platform for cultural exchange. We have public events,、uh, public lectures, and cultural events. These are something we are very proud of. This. The events we have done in the past, and now let's look at the public lectures. The、uh, public lectures. One example is、uh, global financial regulation implication for China, by very high CEO. He is、uh, Mr. Charles Haswell.、Uh, he is the global head of financial sector policy HSBC.
uh, he's also the member of advisory council of CIBO. And uh, these are the speakers and topics. I'd just like to give you a few examples. To conclude my short speech or uh, con uh, presentation, I think Chinese soft power refers to cultural exchange for mutual understanding. This can be regarded as the definition of Chinese cultural soft power. And the purpose of China's soft power is to let more people in the world to ha have a better understanding of China and its people. The roles of Confucius Institute, in this sense, can be regarded as a part of China's cultural soft power. I'm very happy to say that Sibyl is part of Chinese, China's cultural soft power. Sometimes we feel, uh, sometimes we feel that we are wrongly blamed. What we are blaming is uh, quite different from what we are doing. And I really want to, uh, including Nick, really want to find a chance to explain to the, uh, to, to the people that we are doing something which is different from the criticism. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Professor Tao for this uh, stimulating uh, presentation. <laughs> I, I, I wish that we would have more time. Could we have more time on our hands? Is, is our time up now? Yes, we have time for questions. We have still time for questions. Five, five minutes. Yes. I need a microphone. I need a microphone. Um, well, well, thanks to all the panel, and particularly to my colleague, uh, Professor Luo, for the demonstration of soft power at its softest and silkiest. And I think we can really get an idea of your frustration and ours sometimes that we get the criticism and we are actually doing something that we feel is actually rather worthwhile. I am um, a pure manifestation of soft power, um, all my life, my working life, I've been engaged in soft power. Um, I'm a language teacher. And if you're a language teacher, you teach the languages of other countries that you love. And it's your job to bring a little bit of Germany, because I'm a Germanist, or a little bit of French, or a little bit of um, Dutch sometimes, the languages I've taught, into the classroom and also get people out of their own world where they're in, in London or Manchester or wherever you're teaching, and bring a world outside of their immediate experience, whether they're 11-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 22-year-olds. And it's that fact that I've never seen it as something dangerous that I am doing marketing. If you look at my life, I've been 24 years in higher education, 13 years in school. I've worked two years in fashion marketing. Now, that is soft, silky power at its worst <laughs> or best. I don't have a problem with it. And also, I think we have to be realistic. We're all going slightly panic mode about soft power. 
but it doesn't help all the time. Um, if you are a German teacher in Greece, it's not a very nice time for you at the moment. And all the amount of soft power that you've got in having Mercedes adverts is not getting you through the fact that we've seen some of the most vile cartoons about German politicians that, that really, you know, really make you go that certain images of countries don't go away. And there are limits to the power, soft power, that can have. But I was particularly in, intrigued by um, the, the, the student speaker earlier because, sorry, I'm taking over, I know, but that's my soft power working, um, <laughs> that you use the P word, propaganda. And I'm, I'm an intercultural person, so I knew where you were coming from when you said that. But for people hearing the P word... In, in other things, it just was like <gasps> a, a, a moment, a hard moment. Dirty it's a dirty word, yes, exactly. <laughs> but the point is, it's, it is a word. It's as simple as that. And what I'm going to end on is the importance of language. Because when you learn other people's languages, even if it's a little bit, you actually see the other worlds behind the words. And you realise that certain things do not have the effect and power that you first hear. So the thing is, yes, it is important. Soft power is important. I think everybody, day by day, when you're in another country, you're part of the process. And it's something that is part of everyday life. It's being packaged very well by magazines like Monocle as something that's brand new. It's always been there. Look at the British Council. And by the way, talk to the British Council about the Northern Ireland situation. And you might get... Yes, there are difficult situations in the world, and it's not always easy to find the words. Thank you. I think we have time for a few more questions. Yes. Yes. Uh, thank you very much indeed for your presentations and the uh, softness of the soft power, because I'm going to ask you a hard question about soft power. Um, there are alarming reports and increasing reports about curtailment and restriction of academic freedom in China. And we've also heard that uh, two North American universities, one of them I think the University of Chicago, have ended their relationship with the Confucius Institute there for rather similar reasons. Would you be able to comment on that? Uh, thank you for your question. And uh, uh, first, I think that uh, it is uh, quite normal for some Confucius institutes are open and some Confucius institutes are closed. That's uh, simply because if there is a need for the Chinese language and uh, Chinese culture, then certainly the Confucius Institute will be there. Otherwise, and uh, probably it will be closed. And uh, uh, on the other hand, the, uh, another thing is that um, uh, I'm not in the position to make comments on the other Confucius Institutes. And uh, probably, uh, I'm not quite sure about uh, what, what, ha what has happened in the Chicago or somewhere else. And uh, well, I just uh, I, I know what we are doing here, and I'm not sure if uh, I answered your question or not. 
Thank you. <coughs> we, have, we have time for one more question. Yes. And what does this tell us about soft power well, in China? I, I simply cannot understand how the Hanban could have suggested that the five classics should be translated into English to serve as a handbook for foreigners who are interested in Chinese culture because they would learn nothing from these texts. And then the idea would be to have them written retranslated from English into French and German and Spanish and, and Russian, what have you. And that is not a question of translation. That would be second-hand translation. So the whole, the whole idea was wrong from the very beginning. And I have, I have opposed it very, very heavily in, in various quarters and fora. Okay, thank you. Yes, I think that, that uh, will end this this panel's discussions. Thank you so much for having taken time. <laughs>